Welcome to the podcast series on addictions, where we look at the issues around drinking, drugging, and gaming. I'm Chris McKay, and I'm joined by Heather Garo-Miller and Nicole Emerson, and we are your team of health promotion specialists in Edmonton. In this first episode, we are going to look at drinking in the context of stress, risks, and potential benefits, and then what happens when we drink too much, and then some of the guidelines that are in place to help us find a path to safe use. When we consider the topic of drinking from a health promotion perspective, we need to look at the role of stress in alcohol consumption and what we can do to manage stress and build resilience in a way that will keep us in the green, so to speak. Questions we need to ask ourselves are, what happens when we consume alcohol, both in terms of health, as well as with respect to our lives, livelihoods, and relationships? We also need to think about how the low-risk drinking guidelines can help navigate a path to safer consumption, as well as what role harm reduction or abstinence can play, and finish up with a quick look at the resources available. It's not really just about cracking open a beer and wondering whether there is someone that can drive me home or whether I'm stopping at one or polishing off a six-pack. There should be conscious decision-making processes taking place, albeit loosely, so we don't end up doing things that will make us regret our actions later. Exactly right, Carissa. So when we think of the reasons that people might use alcohol, there are probably several reasons that come to mind. But think about why else a person might choose to drink or more problematically, choose to drink too much. Essentially, people use alcohol or other substances for that matter to change how they feel. For example, trying to avoid or numb feelings in reaction to a stressful event. We all learn to cope with stress in different ways. When life becomes too stressful, one way of dealing with it is by drinking alcohol. Nobody drinks too much consistently because everything is okay. Back in high school, college, or university, just making it to the next weekend or through exams may have been an excuse enough to go out and drink too much, maybe get loaded. But when things change and we grow up and we get jobs and start families, looking for a reason or excuse to drink is generally a sign that it isn't just about blowing off the stress of a rough week anymore. That's the thing, right? We experience various levels of stress at different times of our lives, whether the source is outside of our control or within our ability to manage. A stressor is the event and stress is the response to that event. Our level of stress is influenced by how we think about what's happening to us. For those of you who have taken our Stress Take Charge workshop or viewed our Stress Less series available in two parts on our CAF Connection page under the HP to go tab for on-demand learning, just like this series, you'll recall the categories of different stressors. Major life events like moving, family disruption, job loss, job change, deployment, illness, or day-to-day hassles like traffic gridlock, deadlines at work, family conflicts. Then there's self-imposed demands, like being a perfectionist, having unrealistic expectations. When a person experiences those things, they are filtered and we react either as though everything is fine or that there's a problem. That is, we feel stressed. On top of that, though, a situation may be deemed stressful if there are inadequate skills or resources to cope with that situation. Right. An example of something that could be a stressor, but typically doesn't stress a person out, might be getting stuck in traffic, but throw in a fight with a partner that made them late for work. And now that same traffic jam could be the thing that pushes them over the edge. And now they are stressed out. 
People have different tolerance levels and different coping mechanisms. So it's interesting that some people can see and use alcohol purely for entertainment or occasional use, while others may end up using alcohol as a coping strategy. Some factors that come into play in determining whether or not an individual will drink in response to stress include genetic variations in the way individuals respond to stress, having a family history of drinking in response to stress, an individual's usual drinking patterns and expectations regarding the effect of alcohol on stress, the intensity and type of stressor, and the individual's sense of control over it. The range of one's ability to cope with perceived stress and the availability of social support and high levels of stress may influence drinking when alternative resources are lacking, when alcohol is accessible, and when an individual believes that alcohol will reduce their stress. So if we were to ask you, the listeners, to think about your past or current drinking behavior, would you say that drinking reduces or induces, encourages stress. This is an important self-reflection because if you can identify that now, it can be very helpful in either preventing problems later on or in recognizing that now before things really get out of hand. While some studies have shown that alcohol in low doses may lessen the body's response to stressors, many studies show just the opposite, that alcohol can actually increase the stress response by stimulating production of the same hormones that the body produces when under stress. This is particularly interesting given that many people report that they drink alcohol to reduce stress. Right. So the thing to keep in mind is that stress management is something that we all should and need to do And most of the time we manage to deal with day-to-day stressors with varying degrees of success. So think about the strategies that you use regularly to help you deal with stress. What do you do to get perspective? Do you have people to talk to or who can act as a sounding board? What do you do to relax? A lot of people think stress management and self-care and spa days are synonymous, but it's not always about bubble baths and herbal tea. Sometimes it's about being able to turn off that hamster wheel in your head so you can go to sleep or focus on the task at hand. How do you live in the moment in a mindful way? Do you have a go-to list of people or agencies, organizations, or hotlines that you can access when you're hanging on by the skin of your teeth? It's not a bad idea to have that list somewhere so that when things are a little bit hairy, that you still have the wherewithal to pick up the phone and get some sage advice from someone. Another thing to consider are the things that we always talk about in health promotion, the three pillars of health and wellness, eating well, being as active as you can within whatever limitations exist, either for the moment or for you generally, and trying to make sure that you get the sleep you need are clearly always going to be good strategies. But it's kind of like the chicken or the egg a lot of time. When things aren't going well, we don't always make good decisions. So the things that would help us feel and be better are precisely the things that we aren't doing when we go off the rails. That's exactly it, Heather. Sometimes we need to look at things such as who do you connect with on a regular basis? Are the people in your life that matter to you easy to get in touch with? 
it doesn't matter whether they are in the same city or across the country. We all have the benefit of living in the 21st century, thankfully, where communication literally happens at the touch of a button on your phone. But if you don't have people in your contacts that you can go to for help, perspective, or that sage advice, then that can become really problematic. You need those connections to be well, to survive, to thrive. Despite how easy it is to connect, it is still difficult to meet people. So if you haven't got any work friends and your buddies from back home are too busy dealing with their own issues and maybe you're not close to your family, well, it can become a real challenge. And another interesting way to meet like-minded people and not on Tinder is (laughs) by participating in continuing education whether formal, like working on a university degree part-time or more informal, like taking things like art, pottery, novel writing, photography, et cetera, courses from your local community college to compensate for the challenge that we might have in connecting with those work friends or buddies from back home that might be a little bit busy right now. Of course, it's easier to connect with people when you're in a class together, but it's still important to find a way to spend time in meaningful ways that bring you joy or satisfaction, regardless of whether you're in a class, in a virtual class, talking on the phone or whatever. But those two things, social connection and education and growth are essential to mental well-being. But you can work on your mental well-being without ever registering for a course or talking to anyone. You can learn to live more mindfully. You can focus on the present moment. You can practice living a more meditative way by focusing on your breath, doing grounding exercises, like noticing the things you see, hear, smell, and feel while driving or at work or wherever. And it's important to remember that working on mental health, mental well-being isn't an either or proposition. It can still be something you work on while you deal with perhaps the effects of drinking too much. Everything is connected. So starting anywhere can make a difference. Having a positive conversation can be the spark that helps you to try a new strategy for falling asleep, which allows you to wake up more refreshed which inspires you to go for a brisk walk or run, which works up an appetite and you cook a healthy veggie-filled omelet for breakfast. It can become a domino effect of positivity, but we all need to start somewhere. Baby steps is generally always the best way to tackle anything. It's the answer to the age-old question, how do you eat an elephant? One One bite bite at a time. time. (laughs) Exactly. The capacity for that ability to deal with stress or resiliency varies over time and circumstances and depends on many factors. Most people who have dealt with difficult events and challenging life experiences generally adapt well over time. It is the ongoing process of resilience that enables them to do so. To be emotionally resilient means to be able to spring back emotionally after suffering through difficult and stressful times in one's life and the ability to move forward, grow, and develop. Resilience impacts the mental filter stage in the stress process and improves our stress reaction. Resilience can also involve personal growth, just like that obtained when we try new things. While these adverse events much like rough river waters, are certainly painful and difficult, they don't have to determine the outcome of your life. There are many aspects of your life you can control, modify, and even grow with. That's the role of resilience, 
becoming more resilient not only helps you get through difficult circumstances, it also empowers you to grow and even improve your life along the way. Being resilient doesn't mean that a person won't experience difficulty or distress. People who have suffered major adversity or trauma in their lives commonly experience emotional pain and stress. In fact, the road to resilience is likely to involve considerable emotional distress. While certain factors might make some individuals more resilient than others, resilience isn't necessarily a personality trait that only some people possess. On the contrary, it involves behaviors, thoughts, and actions that anyone can learn and develop. The ability to learn resilience is one reason research has shown that resilience is ordinary and not extraordinary. As a kinesiologist, I like saying that developing or becoming more resilient is like building a muscle. It takes time and intentionality. But unlike going to the gym, the way to work on resilience is more about focusing on our four core components, connection, wellness, healthy thinking, and meaning. That can empower you to withstand and learn from difficult and traumatic experiences. But that's also not to say that we don't get tired of having to be resilient. It can be exhausting to constantly be having to cope, survive, get on or over things. That's when those connections, the social support, your go-to people are so important. So that when you are simply done, you can turn to them rather than the liquor cabinet to help to get you through. And that's the thing. The fact is that there are costs and benefits to pretty much everything, even exercise. There is such a thing as too much. But with alcohol, people will often say, and perhaps it's an excuse to hide behind, but they'll say that there are health benefits to drinking. And sure, many studies have reported protective health benefits from moderate drinking, ranging from a reduced risk of heart disease, stroke, and diabetes to better immunity against colds. However, risks of drinking depend on sex, gender, overall current health, amount of alcohol consumption, and family history. But there are a lot of costs to alcohol too. And in fact, that same research also shows that not drinking will still decrease the risk of other diseases such as cancer. Drinking as little as one drink a day on average can increase the risk for developing cancer of the breast, colon, and rectum, esophagus, larynx, liver, mouth, and pharynx. Exceeding the weekly limit can triple the likelihood of developing chronic diseases, and increase the risk of cancer of the colon, rectum, and breast by one and a half times. Drinking beyond these weekly levels also increases the risk for problems with learning and memory, depression and anxiety, as well as work and family life. Long-term use of alcohol can damage the brain, which can lead to dementia, difficulties with coordination and motor control, and loss of feeling or painful burning in the feet, and none of which sound very cool. Alcohol use disorder, which is actually a thing, often results in clinical depression, And the scary part of that is that the rate of suicide among people who are dependent on alcohol is six times that of the general population. Wow. And when you consider all that, it seems like an awful lot of cons. And it is. So while the pros are that drinking can be a way to socialize or to relax or to unwind, the key becomes the amount and frequency because as we just mentioned, It doesn't take much to push someone over the edge from a health perspective to where the potential risks start to quickly outweigh the pros. To be 
low risk, individuals must keep within the single day and weekly limits for their gender. But they also need to remember that drinking within the LRDG's lowest drinking guidelines does not mean there is no risk to drinking. Guidelines for specific illnesses will depend on each person's risk for those conditions. It is impossible to provide guidelines for every disease and circumstance. However, those concerned about cancer should drink less than the guidelines specific to cancer. And those concerned about other alcohol-related conditions should drink less than the limits recommended in the LRDGs. And we'll talk more about those in a little bit. As we mentioned at the beginning, people don't generally overconsume alcohol because everything is going so well in their lives. And that's when this next point becomes really important, binge drinking. Binge drinking means that you have consumed more alcohol in a specified period of time than would be considered to be in keeping with the lowest drinking guidelines, which we'll look at in a minute. It is the amount and speed at which that alcohol is consumed that is the problem. It is a sex-related thing because of how males and females metabolize alcohol differently. So that needs to be kept in mind. The time period is generally considered to be two hours or less. So again, something to consider when you begin to analyze how much, how quickly, and how often you might be drinking. One of the things to bear in mind as well is that alcohol is one of the most commonly used drugs. 94.2% of CAF members drink alcohol. If you picture a triangle lying on its side with the pointy end to the right, the left-hand side would be the population of drink, which is most people. The interesting thing is that it is not here where the majority of problems related to alcohol consumption occur. It's that small number of people in the middle who begin to get into some trouble, and then that relatively tiny number at the far right of that pointy end of the triangle who experience those severe problems. Prevention programs are usually aimed at the majority who don't experience problems. It's about awareness and the idea that knowledge is power. For those with mild to moderate problems, brief intervention programs can help to recognize issues and focus on behavioral changes before issues arise that lead to problems with longer or more severe consequences. People with more severe problems usually need specialized treatment. By the time we get to the substantial to severe problems, we are already at a place where relationships might have been affected. People are starting to notice and it is harder to cover up the side effects of drinking too much or too often. This is generally a very small part of the population, but it is these folks that need the most intensive intervention to get things back on track. Counseling, perhaps some time in a treatment facility, as well as ongoing aftercare are going to be necessary to help them figure out how to get their lives back on track. Again, these are the smallest number of people along the continuum. The question we ask ourselves in health promotion is how do we get the information and resources to people in the first two categories in such a way that we can start to make positive changes before things really hit the fan. In a lot of ways, it goes back to those stress management slides. If you have strategies and resources in place that you can turn to when you still have your wits about you, it's a lot easier to get back on track than having to start oftentimes from rock bottom. So thinking about the drinking continuum and the goal of health promotion to help to prevent problems before they start, the intention of podcasts like this is manyfold awareness. You don't know what you don't know. Information and education are one step to ensuring that we can keep the majority of people healthy and safe. Support, 
encouraging people to try to build connections so that they have the support they need during those rough times. That's so critical. Recognizing that no person is an island and that we all need someone to lean on once in a while. That's important for people to start to feel okay looking for that support. Resources. Knowing what type of resources are available and how to access them is another preventative piece. Knowing where to turn and what guidance and support exist may help people to get help earlier when the negative impacts are still relatively minor. But here's the big hurdle. Awareness doesn't necessarily translate into behavior change. Just because you know something doesn't mean that you're going to be able to take those steps to start dealing with it. This is why it's important to have that support network of people available who might be the ones that finally say, okay, enough is enough. It's time to do something because you're on a downhill slide to nowheresville and it's time to slow down and think about some options and some ways to get help. So when we think about being able to put the brakes on things, what we need to be able to do is to stop while we're still ahead. But if that ship has sailed, we need to at least know where we can turn to for help so that we can get back on the right track. Fortunately, both of those things exist to a certain extent, and they are the lowest drinking guidelines. And the fact that we are lucky to have so many resources available both in Garrison and on Civvy Street if necessary. Anyone who has participated in an annual briefing should be familiar with these numbers. The lowest drinking guidelines have been around for over a decade, but it is still a bit of a hard sell to some people. It is not that it is about telling people not to drink but that if they choose to drink, that there are ways that they can still participate in the social, fun, relaxation aspect without putting themselves at significant risk of short or long-term consequences of regular alcohol intake. The number of drinks per week is based on the amount of alcohol least likely to have negative health effects. It is meant to be a guide, but not a target. If you are drinking less than this, then perfect. If you're drinking more than this, then perhaps it is a bit of a wake-up call to start making some changes now before things escalate or problems arise. The lowest drinking guidelines are an example of harm reduction, which aims to reduce the negative health, social, and economic impacts of substance use on individuals their families, and communities without requiring abstinence. Harm reduction approaches do not take away personal responsibility for alcohol use and consequences, nor is it synonymous with legalization. But at the end of the day, the only way to avoid all the risks associated with alcohol is to fully abstain. That is to not drink at all. Some people choose to abstain from alcohol or other substances altogether. The reasons people choose not to use alcohol or other substances is varied and depends on what is going on for a person, their family history, their history, or many other factors, which would include their health, physical and or mental. And that may include contraindications with other medications. It could include past alcohol and substance problems. It may include religious or other cultural beliefs. It may include people who have had a history of chronic and severe use and may find that abstinence is more effective than trying to reduce their use. It also includes women who are trying to get pregnant or are pregnant. And lastly, some people who do not like to feel out of control. Exactly. 
lots and lots of options, lots and lots of situations, lots and lots of cases. So don't feel like you have to be any of those or all of them or none of them to decide whether or not abstinence is something that might work for you. Because there are, of course, times when in the course of your jobs, zero intake has to be the limit. Like when you're driving, using machinery or tools. In short, when you're working, when you're taking medications that interact with alcohol, when you're performing any type of dangerous physical activity, when you are living with mental or physical health problems, including being in recovery from alcohol. Particularly, you want to abstain when you're responsible for other people, because now it's not just about you. Finally, anytime you need to be making important decisions, you want to be doing that with a clear head, not one that is clouded by how much you might have been drinking. So as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, there are many reasons why a person may choose to drink, but there are clearly also many reasons not to. We all need to be responsible to ourselves, our coworkers, our employer. So whether you choose to follow the low risk drinking guidelines or to abstain completely, make sure that there won't be any regrets as a result of the choices that you make around drinking. Because we want you to have the tools in your toolkit to help you either make the right decisions or know where to go if you think it might be time to have a conversation about your drinking. We thought we should mention some resources. Be sure that wherever you are, you have the numbers for your mental health clinic, the addictions counselor, know if, when there are drop-in hours, and what the regulations are with respect to public health measures. Write down or put it in your contacts on your phone the number for the Member Assistance Program, which is 1-800-268-7708, which is a line staffed 24 hours, 365 days a year by a fully bilingual trained counsellor. Another really valuable tool is to know how the DMCA process works. If you aren't familiar with Director Military Careers Administration, then talk to your supervisor to find out more about that. Again, as we said, knowledge is power. If you know what the consequences are, it could be more powerful beforehand than finding out after the fact that you are now in a bigger mess than you may have realized. As always, the Padres and Chaplains are a great resource. They are trained to listen and they have access to resources that you might need. And while people don't always think of CISEP, if finances are what is stressing you out, or finances have been affected because of things that have already happened, talking to someone at CISEP can help you get things back on track so that it's one less thing to worry about. And that pretty much sums it up. Thanks so much for listening to episode one of our Drinking, Drugging and Gaming Are You in the Green series. If you have any questions or would like more information about our courses in person or virtual, then please contact us at healthpromotionedmonton at forces.gc.ca. You can also follow us on social media where you'll see tips, recipes, ideas, and just for fun stuff that covers materials in all the core areas of health promotion. If and when you tire of cat videos or memes, check us out and fill your feed with stuff that's good for the mind and the body. Until next time, take care and stay healthy.